five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. Hello, space enthusiasts. My guest this week is Guillermo Sonlein, who has been involved in the space sector for almost 20 years in various roles, including being the original founder of Space Angels Network and the chairman of asteroid mining company DSI. We're having a broad conversation about everything that's going on in space right now, which I think includes a lot of valuable thoughts, especially for those of you who are current or aspiring space entrepreneurs. Now, here are a couple of short messages from our sponsors, then please enjoy my conversation with Guillermo. My name is Raphael Rodkin, and I'm an investor and advisor to space companies. Just as a reminder, this podcast is for informational purposes only, and nothing should be taken as investment advice. This podcast is sponsored by Nanoavionics, a satellite manufacturer and mission integrator. Their technologies enable many space companies worldwide to offer services that improve life right here on Earth, such as providing global connectivity, conducting Earth observation, or contributing to scientific discoveries. Check them out, and also check out my episode with their CEO and co-founder. Sadly, I am not a rocket scientist, but I'm an alumnus of the International Space University, ISU offers a number of educational programs about space worldwide. Check them out at isunet.edu. Well, hello. I'm here today with Guillermo Sonlein. Hey, Guillermo. And Guillermo actually is a serial entrepreneur and space, and, and actually I should say an exploration because um, he has also had ventures in, in the oceans, which we'll talk about. But Guillermo has worn many hats, and Guillermo, please tell me if I forget to mention something right now. You are the original founder of Space Angels Network, or today known as Space Angels, the oldest and probably best-known angel network in the space sector. As I said, you've been a serial entrepreneur. You have been a founder of a satellite communications company, of an ocean exploration company. You were the chairman of DSI, one of the asteroid mining companies. And of course, we are very happy to have you as a um, entrepreneur slash executive in residence at E2MC Ventures. Did I forget anything? Uh uh, probably, but we'll probably talk through it as, as we'll we go cover through. It. Yeah, we'll cover <laughs> it. Okay, let me just jump in right with um, some current stuff. So Richard Branson flew to space suborbitally. And of course, um, Virgin Galactic was effectively an outgrowth of the Ansari X-Prize competition, which was designed to stimulate uh, human spaceflight. And that X-Prize was eventually won the second flight, if I remember correctly, in October 2004. So this is 17 years ago. Now, and I think this is probably, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, around the same time that you started getting more involved in space. So 17 years later, Branson in space, what kind of feelings does that evoke, if any? Oh, boy, uh, that it's been a long journey. Um, but uh, but I think more than anything, it, that everything's finally starting to come together. I, I love reading uh, some of the pieces that Rick Tumlinson writes, because he's had a similar perspective, maybe a, a, a lot longer than, than mine. And uh, a lot of the stuff that we've been pushing a lot of people have been pushing for like 15, 20 years is finally all starting to click. You know, like, like you mentioned, uh, the Ansari X Prize was won in October 2004. That same time as when uh, Branson announced the creation of Virgin Galactic. And I remember that when he announced it, he envisioned that commercial operations for Virgin Galactic were going to start in 2008. Yes. Those of us in, in, the, in the space know how back then knew that there's no way it was going to happen in 2008. Mm. Uh, but I think even the the worst skeptics didn't think it would take this long. So it's good to finally see them reach these milestones and it'll be nice. Uh, I think they, they, they're planning on starting commercial operations next year in 2022. 
so it'll be good to finally see that going. And, and, and you're right. I remember I was back in London at the time working in the finance industry. And um, and even then, the XPRIZE made news, even though I wasn't a part of the space sector back then. And it came across my radar screen. And they did start selling tickets relatively soon. And, you know, I, I thought in a you know good year with a good bonus in finance, oh, should I buy a ticket? And couldn't really justify spending that kind of money for five minutes in space at the time. But why did you think it did take so long in the end. And this is actually a more general question, so I don't want to pick on Virgin Galactic, because I guess there's probably also other things in the space sector at large. You mentioned Rick Tomlinson, and, and those guys have been involved in other things that we can talk about. Why has it taken so much longer than people imagined? Well, I, th I think the short answer that everyone gives is space is hard, you know, especially the part that they're trying to do, which is fighting those first 62 miles off Earth, you know, fighting gravity. I, I think that just it, it just takes time. I mean, ask Elon, you know, why did SpaceX take so long you know, to get mm. from when he started to the first flights of Falcon 1, uh, eventually Falcon 9? And um, Blue Origin probably took a lot longer just because Bezos has a more slow-going go, slow approach. But um, but it still takes takes time. It, it is hard. And then obviously for Galactic in particular, they had a couple of setbacks along the way. Um, one of the accidents that they had with uh, scale composites during ground testing and then later when they when was their test flight mishap? 2014 or 2014, 14, yeah. I think. Yeah. So you know that's that sets any company back. So it you know it just it just takes time. Yeah, but if I took the optimistic view, so I could sort of casually say like things don't happen until they suddenly start happening right now. And, and now it seems like we're living in a very accelerated phase. And maybe it's just coincident, right? But obviously Branson flew a few days ago. Bezos is supposed to fl fly in a few days. We have two private orbital tourist missions scheduled. Um, uh, so Inspiration4 on this on the SpaceX Crew Dragon capsule probably later this year. And I think the Axiom-1 mission, which will actually dock with the International Space Station, I think is now targeted, now targeting beginning of next year. But this is just a human space flight, right? And I could also mention other examples where things suddenly seem to start happening much quicker, like the various Mars missions, um, NASA's, China's, um, the Moon sample return mission, China from the Moon. You mentioned SpaceX. Yes, things seem to take a long time, but now the Starship development seems to be happening at quite a good clip, right? We've gone in two years from Star Hopper, the little cute hoppy thing, to possibly having an orbital flight. I mean, they're certainly preparing for it in the, in the next few months. Is that, I mean, do, do you agree that things seem to be accelerating up? And is that then maybe just, just the effect of, okay, all of this work that has been done for years and years in the background, or is there something else that has happened which is enabling this, this perceived change in speed right now? Well, first of all, I don't think it's perceived. I think you're right. It's actual. It, it is actually mm. accelerating. But um, as you talk through it, I just have this this saying in my in my head that I've heard over and over again, you know, an overnight success 10 years in the making. Yeah. Um, you know, sometimes it just takes that long for, for everything to get going. You know, my entrepreneurial career actually started not in space, but on the internet side, you know, during the internet boom. And the internet mm. had been around for decades. And it wasn't until all of a sudden you get right protocols in place, you get the World Wide Web, you get browsers, and now all of a sudden, boom, everything, it, it seemed like it happened overnight, but it took decades to, to get to that point. Um, so I think it's the same thing for, for everything going on in space. It took a lot of things happening on the government side for governments to change their the way they approach space. It took uh, a while for the way investors approach space. It took a while for the way entrepreneurs approach space. Uh, the media, uh, I think it's just all these things were kind of falling in place and they're all bubbling over all at once. In fact, you you um, you mentioned in, in your introduction my starting Space Angels Network to 2006. And, and today, Space Angels is, is such a huge success, in, in large part due to, to the efforts of Chad Anderson, who's running it now. But 
that was, again, kind of an overnight success 15 years in the making, right? I mean, mm. it, it just took a long time for all the pieces to fall in place. But once they start falling in place, it's like boom, 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 and everything's happening at once. Again, I keep bringing up Rick Tomlinson, but, you know, I think he just wrote something right after uh, Branson's flight where, where he said something to the effect of, like, look, the, the future's happening now, people. You know, like, pay attention. It's all happening all at once. The, the funny thing is I get this feeling, and tell me if I'm wrong, that even the people like yourself and Rick who have been in this much much longer than myself, you know, call it 15, 20 years, that, that even you guys are surprised by how quickly it's happening right now. Yeah, and um, I guess pleasantly surprised would be the the, right. the accurate term. Yeah, and it's and it's hard to keep up. You know, I think one of the reasons we're surprised is uh, things were moving so slow for a while. It was so easy for us to know all the players and to know what everyone was working on and what the progress was. And now all of a sudden, it, it, we can't even keep up with it. I mean, you're probably having a similar problem, right? Like even with these podcasts and 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 some of the some of the writing that you do. How do you keep up with all this stuff? It's just happening so fast. But if it, but if we think about it intellectually, we shouldn't be surprised, right? Because we have seven and a half billion people on this planet. And mm -hmm. uh, space is not the exclusive purview of any one group of people or nations. And you get seven and a half billion people start getting interested in something. Of course, things are going to pop at a frenetic pace. Yeah. But the other side of this happening so quickly now, though, is, is the question, even though we had all of this time, I guess we have been very much focused on, I, I guess, rightly so, on the technological side of the development. And now we're suddenly realizing there's all of these other aspects, like, are we politically prepared? Are we legally prepared? Is the, like you mentioned the media before, is the media prepared? So, so one thing that I noticed is after Branson flew, there was in, in some quarters, there was almost like a backlash right against it. There was a, a bit of billionaire bashing going on. It's like, why are these guys playing in space when we have these problems on earth? And, and, and maybe retrospectively, that's not surprising that this would happen. And, 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 and you know very well that I very strongly disagree with this kind of view, but nevertheless, that view is out there. And have we been prepared? Has the, was the community prepared for things happening so quickly? and then all of these other aspects? I, I don't know if we would be prepared because it's really, it's a transitional time for humanity, mm. right? I kind of view this as like a, a 20 to 30 year transition period when it comes to humanity dealing with space. And, and we're just in the midst of it. So I, I don't think anything's going to be fully prepared. That being said, specifically on the backlash, you know, of course there was going to be backlash because there's backlash to everything, right? Like, yeah, even, especially at the moment. Yeah. <laughs> right, like the COVID vaccine. Well, it's just a government ploy, right? Um, someone, you know, Bezos gave away $200 million to the Air and Space Museum, and there's backlash that he should have given the money somewhere else. You know, there's there's always backlash uh, on everything. So I think the key for an, anyone doing anything innovative or pushing humanity forward in any field is just expect the backlash, know when the backlash comes, look at the backlash to see if there's anything legitimate in there that you need to deal mm. with for your future stuff, not necessarily to respond to it, but just to incorporate it into your thinking. And then honestly, just ignore the backlash and keep going. Um, yes. So, so do you think, do you think there's anything legitimate the community should take to heart? I don't know. Um, you mean as far as the backlash specifically on, on the billionaire part? Yeah, I suppose because that's the current topic. Yeah. I think, uh, you know, one, one of the, uh, I don't know if you asked me this just now or worded it this way, but, you know, as far as how we communicate some of this stuff, um, I, I think part of the challenge is the general community seems to see investments in space activities as either or. <clears throat> you know, Jeff Bezos could have put billions of dollars into space, into Blue Origin, or he could have put billions of dollars into 
curing cancer, mm. right, or or something like that. And I think that's that's a false assumption. That's I don't think that's first of all I don't think that's how Jeff Bezos' mind works. I don't know Jeff, so I can't say this, but mm-hmm. I don't think mm-hmm. I don't think anybody works like that. But even even so, wealthy individuals like that have two buckets. They'll have their their. I'm sure Bezos has his Blue Origin bucket, and then he's got his philanthropic giving bucket, you know, mm-hmm. and he's mm-hmm. probably contributing to cures for cancer. I don't know. And, and it, I think that's kind of a legacy of, um, it's it's what Peter Diamandis calls scarcity thinking, right? I think it's a legacy mm. of that from government programs, because let's say I'm from the U.S., you know, the U.S. government has a finite budget, and so it does become either or. Every dollar mm-hmm. that the U.S. government spends has to be spent either on NASA's programs or on education or social social security or, or health care. Um, but as as humanity, we don't have that. Again, Peter Diamandis is talking about abundance thinking. Mm-hmm. Right? It's it's not an either or concept. You can have billionaires investing going to space. And you can also have billionaires, maybe not the same billionaires, but billionaires investing in cures for cancer and solving world hunger and eradicating poverty. I don't know. But um, yeah, uh, so, so I think that's part of the challenge is it's just the general public and it may be kind of fed by the media. It's, it has the scarcity mindset instead of an abundance mindset. Yeah. And it's certainly, like you said, it's not, a, it's not a zero sum game. And it's funny, it's funny, of course, the example you mentioned was sort of the, the either space or cancer. And I mean, we, we won't go into details here. This is for another episode at some point, but of course, space can probably help us a lot with curing cancer. Yeah. And, and, and that's the thing is, look, if, if, if a billionaire, whether it's Bezos or someone else, gives a bunch of money to find a cure for cancer, and they find a cure for cancer, there's going to be backlash against that because someone's going to say, well, now we're playing God, right? We're messing mm. with, with nature. There's always going to be backlash for, for anything, even something positive like curing cancer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, but you mentioned a few minutes ago these sort of like various um, other, ch- so besides space tourism, which we focus a lot of time on now, all of these other changes that have been going on basically the last 10, 15, 20 years in, in space, uh, in, in the space sector. Oh, actually, okay, let's actually sidetrack for one minute. I just said space sector and i think you actually do not like the expression space sector do you want to quickly explain why that is yeah yeah i mean it's it's uh i always say it's one of my pet peeves but it's a relatively minor pet peeve because i can i can understand it you know people calling it the space industry and for me just from the beginning 20 plus years ago i think i had this conversation with rick tumlinson at some point that you know it's not really an industry any more than you have an ocean industry or an earth industry or a sky industry right space is just a geographic location uh, mm-hmm. where other industries industries operate. So for the example I always give is SpaceX, right? Elon Musk and Gwen Shotwell do not run a space company. They run a transportation services company. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Their customers pay them to get people and cargo from point A to point B. It just happens that point A is Earth and point B is space. Mm-hmm. But in in a, in a very simplistic way, SpaceX is no different than United Airlines or UPS mm-hmm. uh, as, as far as how it's run as a business. It just happens to operate in a very extreme environment that's very difficult to get to. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, you mentioned space tourism. Tourism is an industry. It happens mm-hmm. to operate in space. Um, so, yeah, so it's just a kind of minor pet peeve of mine when people say it's space industry, but it's okay. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I certainly hope that over the next few years, as it will hopefully become relevant, how space can be leveraged for pretty much any other tech, um, sector and industry on Earth that we start using that term space sector, space industry less and less, right? Just like it, these days, it would com- seem completely ridiculous to mention the expression internet industry or something like that, right? Well, that was, <laughs> of, about, course, that was what I was Of course we did, right? In the, in the late 90s. <laughs> Yeah, 
that's what I was about to say, you know, because since that's where I started is in the internet world is back then any, anything that had like, there was internet technology companies and those were mm. internet companies. Yeah. And then it got to a point where if you had an e-commerce site, so if you were a brick and mortar company and you had an online store, you were considered an internet company. Yeah. Early on, it was even more ridiculous. If you had email, it was a, you know, you were an internet company. So, yes. And nowadays everyone just uses the internet or right? nobody calls them an internet company. Well, so we move, we move from, let's call it infrastructure to applications, right? But I do believe the same thing is is now happening in space. So of course, of course you have the, I don't know if infrastructure is the right word, but I think you know what I mean, right? The infrastructure slash enabling layer, right? If you want to, if you want to leverage space for other industries, of course, we first need to get there. So that's why we have the transportation companies, like you mentioned, SpaceX, and we need people who build rockets. Um, of course, then we need people who build spacecraft, specifically satellites and, and, and so forth. So those are the enabling companies. But then, of course, what's really interesting is then to use that enabling technology and actually do useful stuff, at least for the time being, for us back on Earth, further in the future than for other locations. But I think this this transition to, applica- to the application layer is... It's only starting, well, let me take a step back. I guess some applications have been around for a very long time, right? Like satellite TV and spy satellites and things like that, right? But I think the sort of really broad move to applications, would you say we're relatively early on? Yeah, and I think um, outside this podcast, I know you and I have had conversations about this even from the standpoint of early stage investing, right? Whether yes. it's seed stage or, or growth stage investing from a venture standpoint. That um, I think during this transition period, as the private sector the global private sector and, and a lot of countries have started delving into space-based businesses. The first uh, wave were, I guess, what I'd call the low-hanging fruit. As you were saying, it's stuff that we'd already been doing before, either because governments have been doing it or because large corporations were doing it, mainly things like satellite communications, Earth observation, things like that, um, and obviously launch and, and, and satellite manufacturing. So those are things that we've as a, as a human race, we've been doing for a few decades now. And even as private sector, we've been doing. Now we're kind of doing them with, with a new, innovative, nimbler, entrepreneurial kind of bent to them and trying to bring some new innovations to them. And, and, and that's all great. That's, I think, what's fueled this first wave over the last five plus years uh, mm. of growth around the world. But to your point now, what's next, right? Like, where do we go next? And there's a lot of things that we've talked about, whether it's like in-space manufacturing or companies like Axiom, private space stations. Mm-hmm. So, so that's the interesting part now. What's next? What 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 will be the next growth areas over the next five years? Before you ask, no, I don't know the answer. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that, of course, that was one of my questions. But if we actually kind of go back and sort of look at the timeline of, let's call it space entrepreneurship, I find it interesting. You just mentioned that like the last five years was sort of the first wave, but wasn't there sort of like almost a, and I kind of tend to think there was something around 2010 or so when really a current wave of companies started. I mean, that, that's when companies like Planet and Spire were founded, right? I think Planet 2010, Spire 2012 or 13 and a bunch of others, right? But wasn't there stuff before? Wasn't it like a like a zero wave or something? I mean, you mentioned again, people like Rick Tomlinson, right? And there's the this, all of these characters that appear in like movies like the um, the Orphans of Apollo. Wasn't there a wave before even that wave that you mentioned? Yeah, yeah. And, 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 and personally, I also don't like it when people discount everything that happened like in the 90s, right? Mm. Because we had a lot of great space, co- private space companies that were launched. I think the reason that kind of gets discounted a little bit is because those were done kind of with what we now call kind of like old space thinking. 
it was, you know, big projects requiring big capital, big spacecraft, big budgets, big timelines. And and it, it and it wasn't really done. I mean, I'll just kind of call it like it wasn't done with a Silicon Valley mindset. Mm-hmm. And and I think that's the big difference. So they certainly paved the way for this transition from from space being the exclusive purview of just a handful of national government space programs to being more of a kind of quote unquote democratized into the private sector. Um, so there were plenty of great companies that that came up in the '90s and also some failures. But based on that. There were a lot of lessons learned then over like 2000 to 2010, this kind of entrepreneurial thinking, and I'll keep calling it Silicon Valley because that's where I came from, but kind of Silicon Valley-ish kind of thinking started permeating into kind of kind of joining forces with those folks who had come from those private efforts in the And I think that's what led to the 2010, 2015 launching of some of these companies, like you were mentioning, Planet, Inspire. I think the reason I say the last five or six years is because I think that's really when venture capital started jumping in. And that mm. just hyper, hyper accelerated everything. And I think the big turning point there that everyone points to is we'll acquire Skybox Imaging mm-hmm. in 2014. Mm-hmm. And that just kind of showed people, especially since those were Silicon Valley companies, it showed VCs in the area. It's like, hey, maybe we can get some exits doing the space thing. Mm-hmm. That's when everything just kind of got accelerated. But you're right. There's absolutely there was a, a wave in the '90s that cannot ignored or even mm-hmm. Un, mm-hmm. Under, understated. So when we when we talk about the silicon the Silicon Valley mindset, and I guess you know some elements of that um, for people who who may not be familiar is just stuff like you know really fast iteration, fail fast if if you if you realize you need to fail, uh, growth hacking, stuff like that. Um, does it translate one to one into the space sector, or do you see there are there any issues of taking this into the space sector as well? Yeah. There, well, there are certain Certainly, um, issues with taking it into anything that is either, uh, well, anything that's hardware driven is harder to do, right? Like mm. Tesla took a lot longer, even yeah. though it's like Elon said, manufacturing is really hard. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Anything that requires developing new hardware, uh, mass producing things on a manufacturing scale, as opposed to just scaling software and adding servers, uh, you know, that's, that's definitely harder. Uh, also, anything that requires uh, regulatory approval is going to be mm. a lot harder. Uh, very, very, very strong government angle in space. Yeah, of you run right up until the government, and, the, and, and it's not just the U.S. government; it's any government, right? It just runs slower uh, at a slower pace. Uh, so, yeah, so there are definite issues with that. I, th- I think part of it, you know, going back to Silicon Valley mindset, what that means. I think part of it, you're right, is the. Uh, I, th- I think it's the not fearing failure. So that's one thing, not being afraid to fail. Uh, almost, I mean, at, at its worst extreme, the caricature, it's almost like carrying failure is a badge of honor. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So, and, and that's hard culturally, especially when you take that to other countries where where failure is, is you know, success is a badge of honor and failure mm-hmm. is brings shame on your family. You know, it's, it's difficult to, to get through. Um, so I think that's one thing. The other is just uh, part of the Silicon Valley mindset is I think, Silicon Valley entrepreneurs and investors are definitely out to change the world. They don't just pay lip service to it. They, 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 they have very audacious goals. I think that's hard for people outside of Silicon Valley to stomach sometimes. And it's also difficult for, now that I'm living in Europe, which is much more conservative than the U.S., it's difficult mm-hmm. for other cultures to stomach versus an American mindset. Um, mm. I was talking with somebody um, uh, the other day who's in Israel. 
And uh, they've mm-hmm. seen some of their uh, counterpart businesses go through SPAC, uh, mm-hmm. SPAC transactions. And they look at their filings and they say, oh, my God, like, we can do 10 times this, but we would never in a million years say this out loud because mm-hmm. it just runs counter to our, to our culture. So I think that's part of the U- Silicon Valley slash U.S. mindset is like, okay, we're going to go out and change the world. And yes, I know this is going to sound harebrained and crazy, but we're going to put colonists on Mars in 20 years. You know, and, and Elon can get away with doing that in part because he's Elon, but in part because mm-hmm. it's American Silicon Valley mindset. Yes, I know he's South African, but anyway. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. Elon, of course, is a case of heart. And even the thing you mentioned before, which I agree with, that the importance of, or that it, that it becomes different when there's hardware involved in manufacturing. I mean, it, it, it's interesting, right? If we really want space to become very big, we still need to, at least I think, massively scale up operations, right? Because again, correct me if, if I'm wrong, if you disagree, it, it seems like even though the space industry has a lot more prominence now, large parts of it are still almost like a cottage industry. There is very little sort of like industrial scale manufacturing going on. I mean, I could probably argue that the only company that's manufacturing at industrial scale is SpaceX, because I think even six, nine months ago, they were already producing Starlink satellites at 100, 120, at a clip of 120 a month, which was unheard of in a sense. Now maybe OneWeb as well, it's starting to get there. I don't know what the production rates are at Spire. But other than that, I don't think there's a lot of sort of larger scale manufacturing at space. Is that something we should watch? Is that something that's worrying? Do you think the space well, sector will... Yeah, I mean, first of all, I think you're right. Uh, yeah, I think you're right. But you've also got to work it backwards is, I don't know if there's enough demand for all that, even if we mm. scaled. Um, so I was, I was reading the other day that uh, NASA uh, has been thinking that they may be able to produce one SLS per year, and even that may slip. So maybe they produce one every two years, whereas SpaceX is trying, getting, trying to get to a point where they can produce one Starship every week, mm. right? Yeah. And yeah, I fully believe that SpaceX can get to a point where they can uh, roll out a new Starship every week. But the question is, why? Like, is there enough demand for one starship a week? Well, this this is, you're hitting a really important point. Why? Huh. Uh, I actually would have forgotten to bring this up in this conversation, so I'm very thankful for hitting on this, which is space, of course, is such a visionary sector where in most sectors on Earth, um, you and I, who are, both of us are mentoring very often young entrepreneurs, right? We hammer into them that they, how much they have to care about product market fit. And so really go out and understand, is there a market there, what you're trying to do, Right. I mean, this is what we really, at least me and I think you're the same. That's what we say, one of the things we most say to young entrepreneurs. Now, of course, if you become very visionary, and maybe that's the privilege of very few people in the world, like Elon and then maybe Steve Jobs, you can play the other way around. You can have the, um, I'm going to call it almost hubris or arrogance to say, I know what you want. I know what you need. And then sometimes they quote, um, they quote Henry Ford, uh, and he has a famous quote who said, well, if people had asked me what they want, they would have said faster horses. I gave them a car. How do you see the tension between those two extremes in the space sector and whatever you're going to do with that? What should entrepreneurs do with that? Yeah, and I, I usually, um, I use that Henry Ford quote. Uh, also, I think Steve Jobs at one point said um, about listening to customers, it's like, I don't listen to what they tell me they want. I listen to what problems they want solved. They don't know what they want until I tell them what they want. Mm. Um, or something like that. I'm obviously paraphrasing. Uh, and I think uh, Elon also, when he started um, SpaceX, I, I always tell the story too. Like back in early days, I want to say like 2006, seven, we organized a lunch event in um, in LA next to SpaceX so that Elon could come be our, our keynote speaker. And 
you can imagine how early days it was in SpaceX because he came and had lunch with us and gave a, a talk to 18 people. Um, mm-hmm. And um, and I remember during that lunch, which kind of became just a roundtable discussion, um, somebody asked him, you know, so what should we be starting? What businesses should we be starting next? What should we be investing next? And he said, I have no idea. That's what you guys are doing. You know, what I'm doing is reducing the cost of access to space 10% mm-hmm. of what it is today. So just start thinking, if I can do that and reduce the cost of access to space to 10% of what it is today, what businesses would make sense then that don't make sense today? <laughs> yes. Right. So he's kind of, and, and now imagine, I haven't talked with him recently, but I'm sure that now he'd probably say the same thing about Starship. Well, I say the same thing. I think we, I think we probably had this discussions at E2MC. I don't remember now, but you know, if if I had to say pet peeves about space entrepreneurs, and and yes, this is directed at any of you entrepreneurs or potential ones listening, uh, Guillermo, like how many business plans do we review where somebody says? I'm doing this because I think Starship is going to work. And uh, my business plan is using that fact that, that I can, you know, um, transport stuff to where, wherever Leo at a few hundred dollars or to the moon at, you know, much cheaper than it is today. I mean, I, I'm actually, I think we have almost seen no business plan at all. Yeah. I think, I, I, I think there was one pre-seed situation uh, that I've seen at E2MC. So, okay. One out of like, God knows how many business plans we get every day. Um, but, but yeah, I agree. So it's, it's, it's the same situation. Well, so I, I think kind of going back to your point, um, I think what Elon did well, and which is a good lesson learned for, like you said, Elon's an exceptional case, but there's some lessons learned for the, the rest of us, um, is he started with his long-term vision, which is this audacious goal of having humanity be a multi-planet species on Mars, uh, worked backwards, and he figured he was going to need to be able to transport thousands of people at a time to, mm-hmm. to Mars every two years. So he was going to need vehicle that could transport more than just three or seven people at a time, which is what we've been mm-hmm. doing as, as our human race. That's all we've been doing. Um, and he kind of worked backwards from there. But he worked backwards until he found a current product market fit, which is essentially Falcon 9. Right? Mm-hmm. I mean, he probably could have even had a business with Falcon 1. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But um, but he found a better business with Falcon 9. That was a better product market fit at the time. And uh, even Falcon 9, without being reusable, right, would have been a decent product market fit. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's a good lesson learned. And I think, for example, um, you mentioned uh, DSI, asteroid mining. Yeah. Um, one, of the, one of the reasons in 2018 I agreed to join the board of DSI was I thought – what that leadership team did a great job of, and I, I don't, I don't remember if it was Daniel Faber, CEO, or or before him, or Bill Miller after him. But what they did a great job of is they recognized that asteroid mining was like a thirty-year effort. Mm-hmm. But then they they figured out the technology roadmap that it would take to get there, and they worked all the way back until they found a current product market fit for water-based thrusters for for small satellites, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. they had a good business doing that. Uh, and then from there, they were going to expand into space deep exploration, small spacecraft. And at, right about that point is when uh, it became um, an interesting fit to sell the company to Bradford Space, which was developing basically a suite of thruster products mm-hmm. for small satellites. So um, so I think that's a, that's a good lesson learned, I think, from Elon's success with SpaceX for space entrepreneurs. Is you need to have this bold, audacious, long-term vision. That's sexy and that gets people excited, but then you've got to have the near term, you know, what can I do today that both makes money today and also gets me along the path to this long-term vision. Yeah. It's like employing the pragmatism in pursuit of the the ultimate vision, I suppose. 
It's, it's, yeah. it's a very interesting line to walk. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a fine line to walk. Um, and I know several companies that are trying to do this and it's very difficult as you can imagine with investors, right? So I, I was just going to bring up that point. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Nice, so, nice segue. <laughs> so what, what, what are they investing in? And, uh, hopefully they won't mind me saying this, but you know, there's a company called Offworld, um, mm-hmm. which sure. by its name and by its, its DNA of the team, uh, is wants to eventually create, uh, autonomous robotic mining equipment that can operate on the moon or Mars or, or whatever. But they found along their technology roadmap a near-term fit today with terrestrial mining operations, um, which in a way makes terrestrial mining operations more efficient, more effective, safer, because you don't have to have humans in these mines. Um, And it gives them near-term revenue while also getting them along the technology roadmap uh, to where they ultimately want to be. But if they go out and raise money, they're going to have to walk the Mm -hmm. fine line. Are investors investing in a terrestrial mining operation or are they investing in an off-world, literally an off-world robotics company? Yeah. And I mean, just to give comfort to all of the entrepreneurs, potential entrepreneurs out there, I mean, I can say from experience that I mean, even Elon himself is facing those issues. I mean, you know, I've been involved in helping to market um, SpaceX shares to investors. And uh, I don't know how it's now. I haven't done it that recently, but um, certainly a while ago, many investors would get nervous about all of the mass talk and and they would then get very comforted by the sort of like, oh, what's the potential of the Starlink satellite communications network? (laughs) So it's not, not even Elon is exempt from this. I mean, yeah. Maybe Jeff Bezos is because he's just financing everything himself, but it's probably a data set of one. <laughs> yes, exactly. Because um, you know, in a in a big scheme of things, that's also why Elon has been very uh, outspoken about why he doesn't want to take SpaceX public, right? Because he doesn't mm. want the quarterly. He, he's he's probably willing to face this once a year, once every two years when he goes and mm-hmm. raises more money from private investors, but he doesn't want to have to face the scrutiny every quarter, you know, on on where he's going. Um, and I'm sure that's why Bezos is financing his own company. Mm-hmm. I think he can do whatever the heck he wants on whatever time frame he wants. Um, yeah. but like you said, that's a data set of one. So, yeah. um, for everyone else, you have to walk the fine line. Uh, by the way, another lesson learned from DSI on the same, on the same topic is the entrepreneurs starting these companies, um, have to understand that because they're their plans are so long-term and so audacious uh, maybe require decades to, to pull off their company. They themselves as entrepreneurs and their companies, their current ventures may not actually be the ones fulfilling that ultimate dream. Right. So they have to keep in mind that their, their personal goal has to be to get humanity to that point. So the people that started DSI want to get humanity to the point where asteroid mining is a reality within the next 20 or 30 years. The fact that DSI is not around anymore does not mean that it failed in its mission. Going back to what you said about media being ready mm-hmm. for this, I think at the same at the same year that DSI got acquired by Bradford, also uh, Planetary Resources, another mm-hmm. asteroid mining company also got acquired. Mm-hmm. And I think the media positioned those both as failures. Mm-hmm. And I don't consider either one of those failures because they did push the needle a little bit further mm-hmm. down the line. Mm-hmm for humanity getting to the point of doing asteroid mining. Um, and, um, and if anything, that, that's a success. Uh, as long as you also succeeded in, a, in, in um, creating value for your shareholders and having a decent outcome for your shareholders, that's, that's even better. Um, the fact that you're not still around to do asteroid mining is not a failure, at least not in my eyes. Yeah, no, I agree with you. And it's because you and I, we also share this vision of, like you described the Silicon Valley mindset of failure that, 
I mean, it's almost, I think, definitional in capitalism that you need the failures to push you forward anyway. And, and yes, like I said, of course, it's nice if you make a return for the shareholders, um, but that's, that's that's almost separate, right? <laughs> even the fail, even the failures push humanity forward. Well, but, and, and even for that, though, it requires, just by definition, requires a special breed of investor, right? Yes. Um, which is why we started Space Angels Network mm. back then, is it requires a kind of investor that, um, number one, is paid but also would see it as a win, even if they didn't make a 10x return like they mm-hmm. want to make, but if they make some return and also push the needle for all of humanity forward. And I think mm-hmm. in a way we can call them impact investors, you know, where they're kind of double bottom line kind of investors. Um, but I, I, I think that also does call for uh, entrepreneurs in the space industry to be uh, very selective of the kind of investors that they get into. Well, so nevertheless, of course, one of the recent trends has been that we, like you mentioned before, we've seen a significant, well, it's called at least relatively significant from a low base inflow of new investors in the, I'm just going to say space sector, forgive me, <laughs> but in, uh, investing in space-related companies, uh, including people who are not specialist investors, because, I mean, as you and I know, there are almost no space specialist investors. I mean, there's basically a handful of firms, including E2MC. So how have you seen this inflow? I guess, of course, on the surface, it's positive. But again, the question, are they all prepared? Is there something they get wrong? It's something where we need more education I don't know. I don't know. It, it's, again, kind of thinking back to the internet boom, right? There were a lot, mm. a lot of money went into internet companies. And I don't, I'm just throwing out a number. I'd say 90% of the investors had no idea what they were doing mm. uh, or what they were getting into. Um, and some of them were pleasantly surprised when they got, you know, 1,000x return on their investment. And some of them were shocked that they got zero in 18 months. You mm-hmm. know? So, um so, so I don't know. And there's the saying that, you know, there's smart money and there's dumb money. Um, but, uh, but regardless, I, I, I think as humanity pushes through this transition, everything will start normalizing a little bit. There's, you know, there's always a shakeup during, during transition. Um, I think ultimately, by the way, you mentioned the specialist funds. I think ultimately there is a going to be an ongoing need for specialist uh, investors, mm-hmm. uh, whether it's, venture capital, private equity, SPACs, um, hedge funds, uh, mm-hmm. fund. um, and, and I, I honestly, I, I wasn't, uh, always of that mindset. I thought eventually space quote unquote space investments would just become mainstream investments, kind of like internet mm-hmm. companies. Um, but actually of all people, you turned my thinking around on that, um, kind of <laughs> describing how, you know, even today there are specialist funds in biotech or maybe real estate, mm. just certain, yeah. certain sectors that for a number of reasons do require some specialized knowledge in that. So I, th- I think we will continue to see that going forward. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. So I, I certainly, as you said, um, I certainly believe that space is different enough that this makes sense. Of course, I'm talking my book here, right, as, you know, a partner at E2MC. But as we know, it's very specialized technical due diligence. It is a very separate network. I mean, the space community has its own its own network, again, similar to biotech. Is there something interesting in space? Off the top of my head, it's the only sector I can think of, which is 
both extremely deep tech and hence, of course, challenging for an average investor to understand. But at the same time, because it's space and it has this visionary angle, it has this potentially really big mass appeal, including to retail investors, right? I really can't think of any other sector off the top of my head. Because if you take something like biotech, biotech is, of course, is very deep tech, but probably the average person on the street, a retail investor, also wouldn't get too fascinated. Again, they probably think it's too complicated, which is at least as an interesting situation, right, with uh, space, because, you know, on the one hand, we want to have the retail world really excited because it supports us. On the other hand, we have to be very careful and sort of uh, almost give the health warning of like, look, this is a deep tech sector and be careful. Yeah, it's almost uh, the only other sector I could think of um, because of my own experience would be the ocean world. Uh, but mm. it's just so much smaller than right. space um, as, as an investment class, as a as a ecosystem. Um but a similar kind of thing. We had similar issues, you know, where you have passionate people, fascinated by it. I've always wanted. I've always wanted to be a marine biologist. I've, you know, I've been a sailor all my life. I've been a scuba diver all my life. Mm-hmm. There's all this fascination, and yet uh, the technologies necessary to to explore, study, and commercialize the oceans is is deep tech. Um, mm. It's just difficult to, to understand what's real and what's not. That's another really interesting, of course, exploration environment, the oceans. And a lot of people would argue, I'm not an expert, right? You are much more than me. But a lot of people would argue that we almost know as little about the oceans than about many parts of our solar system. Where do you see some of the interesting, I guess, similarity and then differences um, between oceans and outer space? And besides, obviously, the obvious ones <laughs> that there's water and <laughs> all of that. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I, I guess we see a lot of we saw a lot of similarities. First of all, there's the what we were talking before about scarcity mindset versus abundance mindset. Um, mm. uh, you know, one one of my pet peeves in the ocean world is the ocean people always saying, "Why are we spending so much money on space exploration when we should be spending money on ocean exploration?" Again, it's like an it's an either or mindset. Um, I think um, the other similarity is because how little we know about the ocean, it's very science driven. Like we need scientists ex- uh, collecting more data and doing more mm-hmm. research at different aspects of it. Um, the biggest similarity, I think, is uh, and we may end up talking about this because I, I have personal interest in Venus, but I, I, I think the biggest similarity is as we're trying to understand how other planets function and whether or not they could sustain human life, um, it forces us to better understand how our own planet operates and how it sustains human life. And the ocean, from what we know about the oceans, we do know that it plays a critical role in our Earth's ecosystem. And uh, the more we learn about that, the better we'll be able to understand how or whether we operate as a species off, off this. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. If you bring, I mean, we could do an entire episode just on, on the oceans. It's such a fascinating topic. But if we bring then the sort of two passions of you, space and oceans together, does that mean you would be super excited about ultimately having a, a submersible on, on Europa, the Jovian moon? Uh, yes. I don't know if that would happen in my lifetime, but, uh, yes, of course. And I know there's, there's people that have, um, deep expertise in both oceans and space who are working on those kinds of technologies, uh, mm. you know, not, not human rated submersibles, but certain sure. robotic submersibles. Um, so, so yeah, I, I think that would be fascinating. Mm-hmm. Besides sort of, okay, the oceans, let's talk about further exploration in general. And you just mentioned Venus. So what is the, um, I mean, obviously we had this news um, 
before last year of the detect well, possible detection of phosphine, maybe a possible biomarker. I mean, again, we have to be very careful and there's lots of caveats around it, but it sort of brought Venus back up on the radar screen um, after, you know, for many years having been sort of, um, let's, let's call it the neglected, neglected uh, sister of Mars or something like that. <laughs> What is the what is the fascination with Venus? Well, I think well. So you mentioned uh, those uh, possible discoveries last year, and then obviously this year, uh, just a few weeks ago, you know, big news with NASA selecting two Venus missions, mm-hmm. and a week later, ESA announcing one of its own missions. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there's a general interest. I think over the last few years with Venus, in large part because of what we're experiencing here on Earth with global warming climate change and uh, the results of uh, greenhouse uh, gas emissions and what's happening with our atmosphere and how that's warming the planet, what's that's the levels and all that stuff. Um, and trying to figure out how to deal with it, uh, I think it becomes fascinating, and I'm not an expert on any of this, right, but it becomes fascinating for scientists to look at uh, analogous situation of what may have happened on Venus. Uh, mm-hmm. and the global warming that that planet experienced and and how it evolved. If anything, it may give us clues onto what's happening here on Earth and what we can do to adjust for it. Mm-hmm. So, um, so I think that's one of the one of the drivers generally it's driving interest uh, in Venus. I think another driver that's driving general interest is um, the the, the um, everything we were talking about before about how over the last five ten years there's been so much going on in space. And all of a sudden, things start seeming uh, doable, right? Whether it's Mm -hmm. space stations in low Earth orbit, whether it's lunar settlements, whether it's actually maybe going to Mars, uh, especially as we've continued sending rovers and orbiters to Mars and the moon, returning samples, returning samples from asteroids, like everything Mm -hmm. all of a sudden starts seeming, seeming possible. And combine that with a shift from scarcity mindset to abundance mindset, maybe it's not an either or thing. Maybe it's an and thing. Maybe Mm -hmm. why not Venus? You know, it's closer to us than Mars. Why not take a look at, at at Venus? Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that's part of the, part of what's driving uh, because of all that, I'm actually surprised that Venus isn't more in the public discord in, in, Public forum of discussion. So um, that's, well, it's, first, it's, yeah, that's it's, something I want to help fix. But yeah, yeah, it's a good question. I wonder what it is. I mean, I just thought of this right now, but maybe it's just some, some of it is also, at least in the public mindset, that might just be also a very simple historical overhang. That if you look at some of the really early quote unquote discoveries, right? I forget, like now, the, I think it was the Italian guy with the, the, the quote unquote channels the canali on mars and people's fascination of like are are they martians many people still calling any sort of um, extraterrestrial life martians <laughs> intelligent extraterrestrial lives right um i can i think both of us we can immediately think of a, a reasonably large number of science fiction novels taking place on mars and and for whatever reason that just hasn't been the same around venus right yeah and i'm not sure why why that is um I, I know more recently, it's probably just because more recently, meaning in the last like 15, 20 years, um, when we scientists start realizing, oh, Venus may not be as habitable as we once originally thought 50, 60 years ago. And because mm-hmm. we didn't know what was below all that cloud layer. And then sure. we start realizing pressure and gases and, mm-hmm. and temperatures, there's no way humans are ever going to set foot on the surface of Venus. Mm-hmm. I think humans just said, all right, forget it. Then we're not interested. You know, we'll go look yep. at Next. other stuff. I, I think another reason is 
maybe a little bit philosophical, but I think, you know, we're sitting on the third rock from the sun. Venus is the second rock and Mars is the fourth rock. So it seems right. like if we go to Mars, we're on our way out of the solar oh, system. We're kind of progressing. We're growing. Whereas yes. Venus seems to be going backwards, um, mm-hmm. uh, e- even though it is closer to us and even though... I'm not an expert in orbital mechanics, but in some ways kind of doing a gravity assist around Venus is actually a faster way of getting out of here than than going directly to Mars. So, but, but I, I, I'm not sure exactly why uh, Venus has kind of been ignored. It's fascinating because just historically, I think humanity has been fascinated. Just looking up at the stars has been fascinated by the red, the red dot that they see, but also fascinated by the morning and evening star. Sure. Right. Sure. So, I don't know why we don't talk more about Venus. And I think, uh, do I remember this correctly? It is actually the first uh, interplanetary probe was actually a Soviet Venera probe, right? I think even before any of the Martian probes. Yeah, I don't know if it was one of the first, but it was certainly early. I mean, the the Russians know more about Venus, at least the surface of Venus, than anybody else, and, and how to get there. And 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 there, by the way, Silicon Valley mindset we were talking about. That's one thing mm. I've always admired about the Russians. It's like failure is an option for them. They, sure. they they don't mind throwing stuff out there, and if it works, great. And if it doesn't, that's all right. We'll learn from it and we'll move on. And is is the interest in Venus? Is it purely? scientific or do you think there ever could be an element of sort of the elon making humanity multiplanetary as well yeah well that's that's my personal interest i i think one of the since i've what's always driven me to do anything space related is to get humans off this planet permanently at least as a species right so a subset of people Mm -hmm. um so of course you know setting up a lunar settlement setting up uh mars you know all of that's always been personally fascinating to me since i was 11 years old. However, there have always been two problems in my mind, uh, because I always try envisioning myself living permanently for the rest of my life on the moon or on Mars. And there were always two problems with me living there. One is because of radiation, I was going to have to live underground Mm. uh, for for the rest of my life. And and even Andy Weir, by mission, said he left radiation out of equation when he wrote The Martian. Right. right. So all, mm. all these, all this stuff that Matt Damon was doing in real life would probably never happen because died mm. from radiation. Yeah. Um, so you know, I couldn't see myself living underground. But even if I could get myself to live the rest of my days underground like a mole, um, can't get away from gravity. So uh, the moon has one sixth the gravity of Earth, and Mars has one third the gravity of Earth, roughly. I don't know how that would impact the human body long term. I don't think anybody knows. Um, mm-hmm. And so I always had those problems with how we're going to do this. And even orbiting space stations and people living on in orbit, I thought you, you still got to deal with radiation and, and gravity. Um, and radiation, maybe you can get around, but gravity is going to be tough. Well, you could so, you could have a rotating like O'Neill type cylinder, right? Exactly, exactly. So um, so you get that kind of artificially created gravity, mm. right? So great. And then I did not know this until like two, three years ago that um, scientists believe that 50 kilometers off the Venusian surface in the Venusian atmosphere, they believe that you could experience 1G Mm -hmm. and have sufficient radiation protection from the remainder of the atmosphere, even though you're close to the sun, to sustain human life long term. So I, I think there's something to be said for that, and we don't know enough about it, but it's something that I think we should be exploring and studying. I want, I want to come back to that in a minute when we talk about um, science fiction, but 
I do want to ask you sort of a wrap-up question around sort of all of our discussions on, um, again, I'm going to use this expression, the space sector. Actually, yeah, let's, call it this, let's call it the space community, right, which we're both part of. So with everything that's going on and this um, acceleration right now and so forth, if there was something like a, you know, space community board meeting right now where we all get together and we kind of look at what's happening and decide what we need to do, what, what do you think should be the, the really top agenda items for us? I, I don't know. You know, it's funny that you asked that because I've wrestled with that. Uh, again, also from an entrepreneurial standpoint, like on a microcosm, what you do in a, in a, in a startup company is a part of me feels like we should have a global board of directors that would kind of have, have put humanity on a common space plan. This mm. is what we're going to do. Our vision for 2050 is that we're going to have humans on earth, humans in orbit, humans on the moon, humans on Mars, humans in the Venusian atmosphere. And here's how we're going to get there. And everyone's going to pull together in that, in that way. On the other hand, I think part of what makes humanity humanity is our diversity. So I think mm -hmm. it's good to have everyone kind of operating on their own plan with their own visions. And some people want to do Mars. Some people want to do Venus. Some people want to Europa, you know, whatever it is, just have everyone kind of doing the same thing. I think the one thing that I don't like is um, there's something to be said for healthy competition. I just don't like, um, uh, what, would, what would I call it? Um, oh, just like unfriendly competition, not unfriendly competition. Uh, uh, I think I know what you mean. Sort of like unfair, destructive, taking the other one destructive down. Destructive competition. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Taking negative competition. You're taking right. anyone down. You know, like there's nothing wrong with um, uh, Branson and, and, and Bezos kind of trying to one-up each other uh, mm -hmm. and go into space and pointing out the differences between their experiences and their vehicles and their offerings and all that. That's healthy mm -hmm. competition. Mm -hmm. You know, Tearing each other down like doesn't doesn't help, and I think they see that. That's why they don't do it. Mm -hmm. um, but um, but I think that's one thing that I I would kind of push all of humanity toward. You know, is healthy competition, not destructive competition. Yeah, I mean, I think at least from my time in the space community so far, it's we we have so far been blessed in comparison with many other communities slash sectors on Earth that space the space community is really for the large part full of idealists. So. I think, fortunately, we have not seen a lot of um, this destructive type of competition. But of course, as commercial success goes up and more and more people get attracted, which, of course, is a very positive development, it, this is certainly, I guess, something we need to keep our, our eyes on as well. Well, and where, where that runs into tension is on the government space side, right? Because mm. there you do have you know, the original space race between the Soviet Union and, and, and yeah. the U.S. And now whether the it's new one. U.S. versus yeah. China or Russia or whatever it is, and that is where it, it, unfortunately, I think that's where the tension comes from. Mm -hmm. um, so I think there's there's got to be a way of that. I think that's why I was thinking, like you said, of a global board of directors to find some way of letting the nations feel, individual nations feel safe while still yeah. cooperating or at least competing in a healthy way, not in a destructive way. Yeah, I, I guess this, this this new space race, U.S.-China, is probably reality. And, um, I mean, things like the, uh, the, the Wolf Amendment, um, and for listeners who may not be aware, this is basically U.S. I mean, I guess it's fair to say it's a piece of legislation almost that prohibits cooperation with China on certain matters in space. It's, it seems like it's here to stay. You know, if I had to take the positive perspective, I would quote Werner von Braun when he said about the space race with the Soviets. Uh, somebody asked them, would it, not, would, it ha would it not have been better to cooperate? And then Werner von Braun said something like, well, if he had cooperated, nobody would have gone to the moon. So he actually, he liked yeah. the healthy competition that you mentioned. Well, so like a few years ago, you, you, the U.S., you know, kicked China out of cooperating with the ISS. Okay, so that's mm. a bad thing. But now 
the Chinese are building their own space station. It's already there. It's, it's inhabited. Yeah. Right. So now we've got humanity's got two space stations, and that's great. And you know, you don't want them participating in your Artemis program. Fine. You know, they're going to go set up their own room. So yeah. From exactly a humanity so. standpoint, at least we end up with two of everything, maybe yes. three of everything, and that's fine. Yes. Yes. And I think it's it's also very important what you said a few minutes ago. It's what's what matters is that we have some sort of level of cooperation and that people who are not actually the government themselves, but maybe commercial space entrepreneurs feel like they're in some sort of environment where they're safe to do their business. Whether that's at the end of the day regulated outright by governments like the US and China getting together and saying, okay, here are the rules, or whether it's just game theoretic, I think is almost secondary, but you need to be safe for um, commercial operations. But hey, I want to finish up as always on science fiction. And um, so let me start here facetiously um, coming back to, to Venus. When we were talking about um, um, the atmosphere, you were talking about the atmosphere and that there's uh, a 1G um, nice environment. I mean, I read, immediately uh, remembered Star Wars, um, Episode 5, The Cloud City, Lando Calrissian, and all of that. <laughs> what is some of your favorite science fiction, if any? So I've got uh, two. Now you mean uh, science fiction um, books or movies, or it could be anything, any media. Okay. Um, so I've got I've got two, but for different reasons. Um, so uh, for me, the Red Mars trilogy, the Red mm. Mars, Green Mars, Blue Mars, for me is uh, fascinating for a number of different reasons. But um, I I think uh, him, Stanley Robinson. Um, did, did a great job of uh, trying to make this as realistic as possible of how yeah. things might evolve over two, three, four hundred years. And it's especially this whole thing of uh, initially Martians are Earth colonists, but eventually they become Martian. And yes. they, they may or may not want anything to do with, mm -hmm. with Earthling. And I think that'll be true for anybody, right? Uh, Venusians mm -hmm. or uh, I don't know if you'd call them Moonies, but, you know, whatever. <laughs> um Maybe not so much so for them because they're so close. But um, anyway, so Mars Trilogy, uh, the Red Mars, Green Mars, um, Blue Mars Trilogy, from a book standpoint, also from a book standpoint, is the first um, Ender's Game book, mm. Ender's mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Trilogy. Uh, and the reason for that one also has to do with entrepreneurship. In fact, when I used to teach entrepreneurship, I used to make it um, required reading. It's also required reading, interestingly enough, in um, at least when I went through Marine Corps officer training. I can see um, that, yeah. Because mm -hmm. the whole concept of creating, and I'm not going to ruin the books, someone's going to have to like go yeah. read the book if you haven't already, but creating a battle school in orbit for children because we have to learn how to operate in zero G and adults are already too indoctrinated in the one G paradigm mm -hmm. of up and down and left and right. And so it's better to put kids in a zero G environment or a microgravity environment where they don't have, they're not, their mind's not polluted with that old paradigm. And I thought the most interesting part of that book was actually the, the, the strain that the instructors go through, uh, walking that fine line between how much do we teach them about warfare versus without polluting their thinking into with our own one G paradigm. And I think mm -hmm. that's true for entrepreneurship. It's true for, for military, but also for, I'll use the word for the space industry, right? Mm -hmm. You've got people who have been launching rockets and satellites for decades and for a long time. And then you've got 22-year-old kids coming out who say, well, why can't I send a probe to Venus that's this, you know, 10 kilograms? Why do I have to yeah. build a huge school bus to go study Venus? Why can't I study Venus with a small little bread box? Um, and, and where do you walk that fine line in between the two? So anyway, that's, that's why I like that. 
Apple. That's a really that's a really great point. It's almost um, it's like what people like Elon preach and Peter Thiel, which is the thinking from first principles. Of course, it is much easier if you have not been indoctrinated all your life and career in a certain way of, of doing things. Exactly. And so that's a very, I think that's a wonderful, wonderfully optimistic message to end up on also for the aspiring space entrepreneurs, because it means like, look, you know, you, you don't have to have been a NASA veteran of 20 years or ULA or even SpaceX, um, because your perspective might be really valuable because it may bring sort of a um, fresh, fresh thinking. In fact, in right. many ways, your perspective may be more valuable precisely because it's fresh. And Great, Guillermo, it's been an absolute pleasure. I hope you're going to see many of those fresh-thinking business plans and uh, working together at E2MC, and uh, let's do this again sometime in the future. Yeah. It was fun. Thanks for having me. Well, that's it for another nominal episode of the Space Business Podcast. If you like this podcast, please consider giving it a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform, such as iTunes. You can follow us on Twitter at podcast underscore space. Also consider supporting us at www.patreon.com forward slash space business podcast. If the podcast got you interested in learning more about the business opportunities in the space economy, check out my new online course on space entrepreneurship on udemy.com. The link is in the episode description. Lastly, if you have any feedback, including ideas for guests, and that may include yourself if you have an exciting space story to tell, or interested in being a sponsor, drop us an email at spacebusinesspodcast at gmail.com. I look forward to seeing you for the next episode.